Welcome to the Fight Lawyer Podcast, where we discuss combat sports and the law. Our guest today is attorney Paul Edelstein, whose firm's $22 million partial settlement on behalf of boxer Magomed Abdusalamov changed boxing. Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Thanks for having me. Let's start with, uh, let's be honest, the reason why you're here, the reason why you're in most places, how did Magomed Abdusalamov walk into your life? Uh, Mago was injured very severely in a boxing match in November 2013. Uh, the way he walked into my life is really um, sad because you never, nobody walks into my life as a professional, as an attorney, in good circumstances. It's almost, it's almost exclusively or always after something bad has happened to them, and in Mago's case, something tragic. Uh, his family sought me out because they were advised by uh, people that they were trying to get help from, mostly physicians, that not only were they not able to be helped because of his condition, in other words, there were no doctors that really could do that much uh, more than had been done for him at St. Luke's, uh, but that very likely what happened to him was malpractice, and really they should seek out the help of an attorney rather than a doctor. So it's kind of a sad set of circumstances that brings him, brought him to my office. Your client... He came to fight at MSG. How did he get there that night? Was he brought over from Russia? Did he fight here in the past? Or was he primarily an overseas fighter prior to uh, the injury in MSG? It's kind of all of of those things. He uh, was undefeated at the time of the fight at Madison Square Garden with Mike Perez. He was 18-0 as a professional. Most of the fights had taken place overseas. He's originally from Dagestan. Uh, but he had been living and training at the time of the fight in Madison Square Garden in Hollywood, Florida. Uh, he had also lived for a short period of time and fought in California and Los Angeles uh, before coming to New York for this fight. And this fight was really um, a precursor, sort of a one or two fights away from him having a really big title shot or you know a shot at a bigger money fight because uh, Mike Perez and him at, at the time were both contenders, both highly ranked. Uh, so this was sort of the, the, the highlights, I guess, for him at, the, at that point. It was, it was, it was the, the top most uh, fight that he had gotten. So that, that's how he came to, to New York at the time. He wasn't living in New York at the time. He was living in Hollywood, Florida. And in fact, he had planned to return to Hollywood, Florida after the fight was over. So that's how, that's how he's in New York. And as he began preliminarily investigating the case that arose out of this fight at MSG, what jumped out at you? What made you say, wow, we have something big here? Probably the same thing that jumped, it ju- that jumped out at people uh, before it even came into my office. I think the headline of the New York Post the day after the fight, gosh, I can't remember what the actual headline said on the back page of the sports, but something like outrageous, uh, because he ended up going to the hospital in a taxi camp. I mean, that really, really jumped out at anybody that looked at this fight and colored everybody's opinion of, of what happened that night all the way to the end, as it should have, as it should have. It really, you know, uh, sending him to the sending him to the hospital in a taxi cab was really outrageous. And that and that that's the thing that stuck out from beginning to end. What what happened afterwards, though, is as more investigation went on, it became more and more apparent as you dig into the details. And that's what attorneys do. Try to reconstruct what happened. Uh, you know, minute by minute, second by second. And when you did that, uh, the fact that he went to the hospital in, the ta- in, in a taxi cab, while that stuck out in the beginning and really was important throughout, that might not have been the worst thing that happened that night uh, when you got into more of the details. Because 
what we found out was that, it, that, that the circumstances of him getting in a taxi uh, was that he was instructed to get into a taxi or to take a taxi by the fight inspector. Uh, now, that certainly was not the right advice, but at least it was somebody trying to do the right thing at the right time. The guy just wasn't trained to do so. He should have been, he should have really been put in an ambulance, but at least the fight inspector at least tried to do the right thing at that point. What let's say a non-trained or a layperson might do and say, Hey, you need to go to the hospital right away. Go get a cab, go right away. So that was kind of a situation where somebody tried to do the right thing and, you know, wrong circumstances. But when we investigated the case with more detail, it was really, really painfully obvious that a lot more went wrong before the fight inspector ever was put in a very difficult position to say, hey, go to the hospital right now in a cab. The real screw-ups, the real problems happened way before that point. So let's talk about that. So you sued New York State. What were the primary allegations? What were the main allegations? What did you allege they did wrong? Uh, this, the lawsuits are a little bit complex because there's two lawsuits running at the same time. Uh, it would be strange for a layperson. It's probably strange even for a lawyer to hear, but you can only sue the state of New York in a special court called the Court of Claims, and you can't <clears throat> sue individuals that are not state employees in that court, so you have to sue them uh, in Supreme Court. So you sort of have two cases going on at the same time surrounding the same event. The claims are a little bit different, but the, but obviously overlap. So the claims against the state of New York were really about procedures and protocols. In other words, the things they had in place to protect these guys before the fight were inadequate. They weren't followed properly and people weren't trained properly to follow them during the fight. And then the procedures and the policies that they had in place after the fight were just woeful as well uh, and left the, the fighter to his own means. So you sued the state of New York or we sued the state of New York in the court of claims and you're alleging negligence, not necessarily medical malpractice because there was only one state of New York doctor. That was the chief medical officer, Barry Jordan. And he actually never laid hands on MAGO. So you're suing everybody else involved in the state, which are really athletic commission employees for the things they did or didn't do. And that has a lot to do with training policies, procedures, and protocols, paperwork, and how they go about protecting these guys for their safety. At the same time, you have four independent contractor doctors uh, and MSG at one point was in the case, but they got out. Those guys are all sued in the Supreme Court uh, in Kings County. And that case is actually still going on. And the allegations there are really medical malpractice. Three of the physicians that laid hands on MAGO uh, did, you know, departed from what we call accepted medical practice. In other words, they didn't do what other doctors would have done under the circumstances. So Two different cases, two different claims, all arising out of the same set of circumstances. And throughout the case, testimony came out that New York state officials failed to even follow their own procedures. How could any fighter feel safe walking into the ring under those circumstances in any case? They shouldn't. They're, they're treated horribly, the fighters. I mean, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think Mago's case is the first incident where it's, it's come to light that boxers and MMA fighters aren't uh, protected or treated properly they're they're first of all not paid much at all and you know and then uh when they get in the ring they 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 have an expectation that policies and procedures are going to be in place to protect them and they should and certainly when you come into Madison Square Garden on this night where you had five physicians dedicated only to the you know two boxers at a time i don't know what boxer wouldn't think okay you know whatever happens to me in the ring some things these guys can't protect me from you know if i get punched in the head and get an injury like that, uh, but I'm sure I'm going to be protected thereafter and get medical treatment thereafter. And they weren't, you know, they really weren't. So I, if I was a boxer 
even uh, even now after some of the reforms in this fight, I'd be I'd be pretty concerned getting in the ring that uh, in addition to the normal risks that you're you know subjecting yourself to by getting in the ring that you're really not getting the, the highest quality care from the people that are there just to do that. And that's, that, that, those are state requirements that these doctors be there, that they be trained, that they follow a certain set of protocols. And from what we can see, it's certainly a Magos fight. It just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And that, and that makes it very, even more dangerous than it already is. Do you know if there are any other states or what other states do to protect fighters, either more or less? My understanding was always that New York State was always on the forefront of protecting fighters uh, and imposing medical requirements. Do other states do it better? Well, I mean, I, I didn't, we didn't investigate each separate state and do comparisons. But from what I can tell, New York State endeavors to be at the forefront. They want to be at the forefront. They generate probably... Uh, you know, in the top two or three states in terms of money making uh, from uh, from boxing, uh, you know, probably Nevada uh, being the, maybe the biggest uh, or Florida. So while while New York generates a lot of money from from boxing and now MMA, which was just legalized, which is really important to understand in the context of Mago's case, I don't think New York really uh, has the best protection. I, from what I can understand, New Jersey, I think is a lot more stringent. Massachusetts uh, and even Nevada. Uh, their regulations seem to be a lot more stringent and adhered to a lot more strictly than what we see in New York. I, I don't know the reason why uh, that, that, that that happens, because I know that Governor Cuomo is a boxing fan and really want to legalize MMA and wants to be at the forefront of, uh, of this kind of sport and the protections. And I know that's his desire uh, to do that. And he certainly showed that desire through Mago's case and settling it and trying to issue reform but it doesn't seem like it's being implemented. And that mo most likely is the, is the problem with the New York State Athletic Commission, which Magos fight really uncovered, really peeled back the onion of what was going on at the Athletic Commission and revealed, you know, a commission that really just was in disarray, a lot of patronage, not a lot of high quality uh, people at the time and training. And you really have to look no further than the fact that uh, Melvina Latham, who was the commissioner at the time of Magos fight, stepped down after Magos fight. Now, you know, she quit, or, you know, or stepped aside. I think she probably would have been fired. The person that replaced her was an attorney named David Berlin, a very, very ethical attorney who also happened to be a boxing fan. He tried to implement more reforms and 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 enforce uh, policies that were already in place, be adhered to more, sort of clean it up. He ended up resigning uh, about a year ago, in the face of some of the requirements that were being passed by the state government in response to Mago's fight and in the face of the fact that the inspector general's report that happened, uh, that was uh, investigated after Mago's fight hadn't been released and his letter, he wrote a very public letter, very public letter to uh, the New York post. I think, well, I'm sorry, the New York times uh, with his resignation and he laid all this stuff out. So, you know, I think you question about, you know, what New York state compared to other states. Well, you know, look at, look at the activities both before and after Mago's fight and you see, that you have an athletic commission that's really not high caliber. And then that's who's governing. That's the governing state governing body for the safety of uh, these athletes. And even after Magos fight, it's still not really in a position where you can say we're at the forefront of safety. You just can't. That's certainly my opinion. And I think that opinion is shared by a lot of other competent people. And you mentioned the requirements that were put into place after the fight, the settlement number jumped out at everybody at kind of, 
caught everybody's eye. But other than that, the insurance requirements passed by the legislature. Can you talk about those a bit? Those seem to be what's affecting the boxing industry the most in light of Mago's case. Yeah, the insurance requirements are affecting the boxing industry the most uh, in a negative way. Uh, what happened was, and you know, some of this is my opinion, but you can piece it together. Um, MMA came to the legislative floor. Uh, New York State was the last state to legalize mixed martial arts. Shelly Silver, you know, who obviously got himself in trouble, was a big opponent of it. And I, so I think once he sort of was out of the state legislature, and now, now it sort of clears the path for MMA to come in. And MMA obviously generates a lot of money. They have a lot of power behind them. New York is a huge market. So they want to legalize that. So that comes on the legislative floor. When it comes there, the MAGO's lawsuit's going on, but the inspector general's report somehow had not been released at that point, more than two years after the investigation was essentially complete. We started a separate lawsuit. We literally sued Paul Edelstein against the inspector general for the state of New York, a separate lawsuit compelling them to release the report. So we're, we're literally suing the state saying, release this report. Where is this? Now, unbeknownst to us, we, I don't follow the legislature and what's going on. The legalization of MMA hit the legislative floor. So the 50-page inspector general report that subsequently came out blasting the athletic commission had not been released. Had it been released, any, leg, any opposition legislator that didn't want to legalize MMA or whatever would have just held up that 50-page report and said, how are we legalizing this sport when we have a 50-page report from an independent state agency that says it's not safe and the athletic commission is you know, totally screwed up? That report didn't exist. So when, the, when MMA hits the legislative floor, one, uh, or at least one state senator, I forget who it was, said, hey, well, you know, what are we doing to protect these guys? And essentially they're, they're talking about Mago's fight. So to appease him, they, they came up with this insurance requirement. And they essentially said, well, let, let's uh, provide a million-dollar brain injury insurance policy in the event that somebody gets hurt. They didn't mention Mago by name, but the implication is clear, like Mago. And that sort of appeased people. Okay, well, all right, we're going to put this requirement in place. And, you know, that'll help, right? It'll insulate the state from liability, which I don't know how that uh, helps MAGO, because the taxpayers have paid $22 million to MAGO. That's certainly a horrible result. Uh, it's something I don't like as a taxpayer uh, that I'm paying this bill. So the million-dollar insurance requirement insulates the state, at least for a million dollars for that, uh, and then it provides some measure of financial recovery for a boxer in the event he has a brain injury. How in the world that protects a boxer in the ring from, from safety or an MMA fighter in the ring? You got me. It doesn't. It's, it's, a, it's a subsequent measure. It's a retrospective measure. In other words, now if you have an injury like Magos, okay, there'll be an insurance policy in place of a million dollars, which is really not a lot of money to cover somebody with uh, an injury like Magos anyway. It does, so it doesn't do a thing to ensure safety before they get hurt. Nothing. But it was sort of a measure to put out there, and it kind of looked good. It's really um, sort of cosmetic. All right, well, we have this thing in place. Okay. And, you know, the, this, this one particular center that was opposing, it felt like it was a good thing. I don't blame them. Okay, we've got something here. That's typically the way politics work. Okay, I'll vote for legalizing it. And I feel better now. We have this insurance measure in place. The other byproduct of it, though, at least initially, was it's a new type of insurance. So insurance companies hadn't written it yet, and insurance companies are in the business of making money. So they have to decide, well, is this worth it? Do we want to write a million-dollar policy for a dangerous sport? Uh, are we going to lose money on that? And, and ha how do we ensure we don't lose money? Well, we make, make sure the premiums on that policy are very high. So the immediate effect of passing that were, was that smaller fights, um, club fighting, 
which is really the bread and butter of these guys, of this industry, not the, the big, big fights, these guys have a hard time affording it, you know, because the premiums are very high. So it, it tacks on a, a higher cost to the, to the smaller matches. And it had the effect of really eliminating or re- severely reducing boxing matches across the state of New York and MMA matches across the state of New York because of this added financial burden, this added requirement. All right. Now, since it's passed, I think there's uh, more insurance carriers writing this policy. It's become a little more affordable. And so we're seeing people buy the policy. It's now a requirement, but it doesn't do a thing to, to uh, help safety, the safety of boxes because it, it provides no added uh, dissuasion for the doctors. It provides no rules and regulations to say, hey, this is when we've got to send a boxer into the hospital. We don't care. You know, uh, no financing or funding for whatever costs would be associated with getting a boxer some extra care, an x-ray, an MRI, a CT scan, a ride in an ambulance, you know, which may have been on these guys' minds as to why they didn't want to send MAGO in. So it really did nothing. So very much a cosmetic solution to appease certain people. Looks good on the outside. When you think about it, with, without much detail, you realize it doesn't do a thing to help safety. Nothing. And the fact that it's cosmetic and it falls on the shoulders of the promoters, who obviously, as you mentioned, can't stage these local fights, how ridiculous is that the boxers are the ones that are being hurt at the end? You're 100% right. And, and the guys that are going to be affected like that are going to be the low-level guys, the guys that aren't making real big money. In fact, even Mago, and this, it was an undefeated fighter fighting in Madison Square Garden on that night at the undercard to, to the Gennady Golovkin fight, you know, so he's sort of there, right? And, but many people are very surprised to hear that the purse that for his fight that night was $40,000. And 10000 went to his promoters and things like that. So, you know, it's the low-level guys that were, would be even most affected by this new, let's call it a safety requirement, right? It's almost like a res- and it definitely was a result of Mago's fight. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Well, what did that do? Uh, and in fact, David Berlin, the, who was the former commissioner of the Athletic Commission, fought back against that requirement and that was a that was really a primary reason why he decided to quit and he said this is just outrageous it's not it's not a safety measure it's going to hurt boxing rather than help it and when you combine that with what he i'm seeing going on in the athletic commission this is sort of berlin's own words and the fact that an inspector general report in his opinion and we agreed with him was essentially being suppressed from being released for some reason and the reason is obvious it was uh, held back until MMA got legalized. Berlin resigned, and uh, you know, and, and said, "I'm not doing this." And and here's a, a guy that was unbelievably qualified to do it. You know, it's not a huge money making job. You know, for this guy, he can make more money doing other things. Uh, and, and now you have him out. You know, so if that gives you any idea of the state of, uh, you know, safety measures or, of the athletic commission or the state of the athletic commission, that's all you really need to know. Uh, you know, and it's a shame since we're the you know, obviously the leading state in so many different ways. And we have a governor who really wants to be a champion of these things, probably has presidential aspirations, which is great. Uh, certainly stepped up and did the right thing in settling Mago's case. I really uh, applaud him for that. I'm a litigator for 25 years. And I got to say, this is a, a situation where the, the governor's office with the attorney general made it very clear to us fairly early on in the litigation that they wanted to talk, you know, that they wanted to get this resolved fairly. And they did. So on the one hand, you have a an administration doing the right thing in the, in the myopic world of this case. And in the, in the larger picture of safety of the sport and generating income for the state, because that's really what it's all about, really, really not uh, doing things in, in, in a way that provides safety for these guys. And that's a shame. 
And how practical do you think federal legislation being passed could address these issues? That seems to be something that could help more than anything else, because you'd have a uniform policy among most states. I think it would help. I think it's important to do that. You know, you have the Muhammad Ali Act that was passed uh, federally, but that really dealt with financial protections of these fighters who were just being, you know, abused uh, financially. Uh, so it put a lot of measures in protection there. I think unification federally is, a, is an excellent way uh, to try to make this happen, but it's, it's cumbersome and you have to convince now the federal government to get involved in something that typically would be left to the states. But, but that's a very big problem that the boxing world and MMA world has now. It's a, it's a Wild West show. You know, all states are different. And that lends itself to bigger problems, sort of, uh, which you can look, let's say, licensing, where, you know, some guy maybe wouldn't get permission to fight in one state because of a medical issue. Uh, and then, he, well, OK, I'll just go over here. You know, I'll just go to Connecticut and they'll license me. Uh, you know, someone that's more lax. So you have that going on. And that breeds, unfortunately, danger for these guys from a safety perspective. So. Uh, federal legislation would, would definitely change that. Sure. Uh, and you have, a, a you know, one of the you know greatest guys uh, in there, one of the greatest uh, uh, congressmen in there, you know, McCain, John McCain, who is a big champion of this stuff. He proposed federal legislation years ago. I, I, but I guess, you know, listen, I can understand that federal government maybe feels like, look, they have other things that they need to deal with other than uh, boxing and the sport, but it would seem to be a, an easier solution uh, if you if you mandated some uniform regulations federal-wise and then the states had to comply with it. How helpful would maybe headgear or some other protective equipment be to shield fighters from this sort of trauma? And how do you balance that with... There, you know, I didn't know anything about boxing well, other than as a casual observer before this case. Now I have some expertise in it, but... I definitely can't say that I'm an expert in, in, in the impact of headgear and the size of the gloves and things like that. But my understanding is that headgear may not protect uh, the brain injury at all. Uh, it may actually even, and in some instances, it add to it, exacerbate it to some degree, which is strange. It does provide a measure of protection for your face, your jaws, fractures, and things like that. Um, and then obviously on the flip side, you know, it may diminish... Um, the entertainment value. People want to see knockouts. You know, I don't, I, I just think that that's been talked about a long time in boxing, uh, what you're going to do with headgear. Uh, and, and it's a debate that's probably never going to result in, in headgear being used at the professional level. You know, you, you're getting into a greater debate about the efficacy of boxing in general, you know, and if you had to ask me as a personal injury lawyer, having the knowledge that I do about brain injury, um, Forget about headgear. You know, you just shouldn't really be stepping in a ring, taking any punches to your head with what I understand about brain injury. So, you know, that, that it's just a different question. And I don't think you're going to ever see headgear become a mandated uh, part of professional boxing. I doubt it. Now, how's Mago's recovery going? What's the anticipated course of action? How well is he going to recover? How long will it take? What's the impact that this will have on his life uh, in the coming years? Well, I mean, I think that Mago, it's, it's, it's really tragic to think that I could say in the same sentence, I think he's made a miraculous recovery. And at the same time, he's never, in my opinion, from what I understand, he's never going to walk again and he's never going to communicate again effectively. Uh, and he's never going to be able to use one side of his body with any uh, uh, real ability. 
So think about that. A miraculous recovery from what, from where he was only to be left in a, in, in probably the worst type of situation, uh, medically, I think you could be in, because, uh, and that is hemiparesis. So he's half paralyzed and not able to walk and use one side of his body and locked in and locked in, in the sense that he probably has a pretty good idea of what's going on around him and, you know, who everybody is and who he was. There's no way for us to know for sure, but it, but my, my belief is in some of the medicals, he really has a good understanding of things that are going on around him, but unable to communicate with any kind of uh, significant ability. I mean, he cannot really put sentences together and he couldn't pick up a pen and, you know, sort of write out a whole sentence to you and say how he felt. So it's, it's really a kind of a locked in syndrome. Horrible. So it's horrible. The future is probably just much of the same. You know, when you're three coming on four years, yeah, I mean, it's just about coming on four years now. Wow. It's, it's almost four years to the day. Uh, I think it's November 3rd was the fight, um, in, in 2013. So when you're about four years out of a severe neurological injury like this, you're, you're basically that static. There's, there's not much more that can be done for you or improvement that's going to happen uh, for you. So while, you know, he's been brought to this incredible level of recovery, and that's really mostly due to his wife and, and, um, and the caretakers uh, that are around him. Uh, the people that are around him uh, and the medical treatment that he's received in large part, because he had a lawsuit going. I mean, that was a big, that's a big byproduct of him being able to get treated the way he was is because we, he had a lawsuit. So he had us in place to help with that uh, and, and help secure financing for that. Otherwise you wouldn't get this treatment. So all of those things, chiefly really his wife helped him recover to the point that he is, which really is like miraculous. Like, I don't think in the beginning, I never thought, he would have been as good as he is right now, but yet look where he is. He's in a situation that I, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, uh, you know, right now. So, and, and that, and that reflects, uh, on the, on the, you know, the large number of the settlement, the $22 million offer from the state, which is only part of what we, of the value of the case. We have another portion of the case that we're aggressively pursuing, you know, the case is worth more. Um, but they, they paid a large amount of money in, in reflection of the, the, the just the tragic, state that the guy's in you just don't see that too often a 22 million dollar settlement in the personal injury world is extraordinarily rare it ju- you know that the public may not think so the general people may think oh you know everybody sues for millions and millions and this and that that's not reality that's not what happens even when juries give awards that you may hear in the paper oh 50 million for this and that and this if they get reduced appellate courts knock them down there is a rational basis for these awards you just don't see this kind of number uh, too often, it was absolutely appropriate in this case. Uh, you know, it's probably two thirds of the va- true value of what the of what the poor guy's uh, injuries are. What I think the value is, and that's reflective of how horrible a situation he's in medically. It's, it's, it couldn't be worse. That's why you saw this kind of number. And now I know you've advocated, you've taken this case, you made it into a project, and you've advocated for something called called Mago's Law. What is that? Well, we 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 just think that. That this uh, that the existing laws that are on the books at the at the New York State Athletic Commission could be streamlined a little bit. They're they're gray. Uh, it's a gray zone. In other words, when are you going? How do you deal with a potential neurological injury? You know, and in this case, the the physicians defended the case by saying, you know, listen, we don't we didn't agree we don't agree with their testimony. We think the evidence is the opposite. But essentially, they're saying, hey, look, he, he, even though he looked like he got the you know the hell beat out of him, so what? Uh, uh, 
we didn't see any neurological signs and symptoms when we examined them. Now, let's put aside for the, for the moment that I think they're wrong. I think those signs and symptoms were there. But even in that situation, they're essentially saying, because we didn't see that, we cleared him neurologically. And that's ridiculous because there's only two ways to really clear somebody neurologically from having a brain bleed like Mago had. He had a slow subdural hematoma that will kill you if it's left untreated, right? Or, or severely damage you like it did here. The one way to rule it out completely is to take a CT scan. You take a CT scan, you're going to see it. And if it's there, you're going to be able to deal with it. And the tragic thing with Mago's case is that had they seen this thing, they could have dealt with it and Mago would be having this conversation with you instead of me. That's how easily it could have been really cured. So a CT scan. But of course, the physicians and the athletic commission and the promoters are saying, well, we can't just send every uh, guy to the hospital and give everybody a CT scan. Now, my position is, hey, yes, you, you can if you want to. It's just money as opposed to a guy's life. And you want to pay us $22 million in a lawsuit, you could spread that money out and give everybody a CT scan. So you, that is possible. Okay? But, it, but short of that, if you don't want to scan everybody, if you don't want to give everybody a diagnostic test, if you just treat them like an emergency room patient after a fight, which is what, you really, what they really are, they're suffering horrible trauma that any normal doctor would say, go to the hospital. The two ways to deal with it are either diagnostic tests or observation for a sufficient period of time to allow the neurological signs and symptoms to manifest themselves. So there's something in medicine sort of called the golden hour. And basically it stands for the proposition that if you have a trauma, it's that, that first hour is usually crucial. And almost everything can be dealt with it during that first hour if you get to it. So a boxer is suffering a severe trauma. Even if they just take one punch to the head, that's enough to kill you. You need to let at least that hour go by. We think that's a minimal amount of time before you clear a guy and say, okay, you're in the clear. So again, going back to try to make it simple, two ways to clear them. Either you scan them, you give them a diagnostic test, which I understand is impractical at an arena, or you let a sufficient amount of time pass whereby you examine him again and say, okay, it's been an hour. You're still not showing any neurological signs, vomiting, dizziness, nausea, your pupils dilating, your speech being off, your balance being off, headache. None of those things are there. After an hour, I'm, com I'm comfortable sending you home. But if the symptoms change, do this, that, the other thing. That's what would happen if you went into an emergency room. So you either do one of two things. You either send them in right away and you go, we don't even care what you say. And that's what should happen to Mago. You go to the ER. What's the difference? Sit there. Okay. Or if you're not going to send them in right away, you at least do enough of these serial assessments, these repeat neurological assessments over a sufficient period of time whereby you could be comfortable saying, okay, you're fine. At least at this point, you can go home. But if the, if the situation changes, get yourself back in. It's, it's not that complicated. And in Mago's case, the real tragedy is we, we know for a fact that the last time any doctor looked at him was 22 minutes, at a maximum, 22 minutes after the end of the fight. That's not enough time. They never looked at him again. You're fine. You can't clear somebody in 22 minutes. You can't. Unless you've taken a CT scan. Then you can. So, I mean, it's just so simple. So, you're, I mean, it's a very long answer, but if you want to really capsulize it, and, uh, and we did, we put it out to the media somewhere, you just do that. You just say, listen, Mago's Law, here's what it's going to be. Guy takes one punch to the head. One, that's enough. In order to clear him neurologically, you, got, you have to do one of two things. Either you're sending him to the emergency room, and then they can deal with him. Or if you're not sending him to the emergency room, you're examining him neurologically uh, uh, over a period of time, and we say an hour. Use that golden hour of a barometer, whereby you can competently say, 
I'm ruling out a neurological injury at this time. You can now go home. If that happened in Mago's case, he's not, again, he's sitting here having this conversation with you, not me. Doesn't sound that complicated, does it? And, and, and thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. Where could people go to learn more about Mago, about his case, and about uh, what people can do to help athletes in Mago's oh. position? You know, I guess right now, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff up on our website. And when you, you know, if you Google us or you Google Mago's name and the articles that have come out in his case, you can probably find a lot of stuff. We're trying to sort of capsulize and, and, and capitalize on what happened to Mago to try to get a little momentum for, for, you know, a little impetus for passing these laws or streamlining these laws. We're trying to do it, you know, to get the word out. There's only only so much you could do as one attorney but the but the real wonderful thing about being a personal injury attorney and a and, you know a small guy i mean we're, we're just you know we're one little firm right is is the, these civil cases can effectuate social change they, they they are a mechanism for getting things done and changing things uh you know be it a boxing match or uh, any other safety regulation they are they, they are a mechanism for doing that so you know Information can be gleaned by looking at Mago's case. And all of Mago's information is publicly available on the court's computers. You can access everything that we've said and all the detail and all the deposition testimony and expert reports and inspector general report. It's all out there in, a, in, the, New York, in the Supreme Court of Kings County. They're all scanned in and computerized. The courts have finally moved into the 21st century. And you can go on a site called eLaw and look up Mago's case. And just from your computer screen, read it all and be a ju- judge for yourself and, you know, and raise a ruckus for yourself, guys that are, you know, there's a lot of people out there that love this sport, that really champion this sport. I was shocked to see, because I didn't know, you know much about boxing in the beginning, how many people just really, really care for this sport uh, to get out there uh, and do something and try to improve it and make it better. And, you know, that, that's, that, that ability is out there. So if, if, if there are more people out there that care about this sport and the guys that are in it, you know, champion the safety aspect of it. So it continues. Otherwise, there's a you know, huge segment of the population that obviously going to say this is crazy and just eliminate the sport altogether if you can't make it safe. And groundswell will only grow when people realize that the taxpayers of the state of New York pay $22 million to a boxer like this for a, you know, a complete screw-up like this. And, and you know, I, I, I'm with them. I'm one of the taxpayers. That shouldn't happen. So if you can't improve the safety of this and, and get it out there, you're going you're gonna to have – more of these cases, more of these tragic situations. There's another one in Virginia right now, a fighter named Pritchard Cologne who was hurt like Mago and shouldn't have been. And there's a lawsuit going there. That's what's going to happen until somebody gets a hold of the safety aspect of it and says, now we've done everything to prevent this from happening again. You know, the one thing you can't prevent, we totally understand it. The guy gets hit in the head horribly in the ring and dies on the spot. That's a risk that these guys take. They all know it, but they don't take the risk that somebody's going to fail them after the fight. It's very much like swimmers in a pool is the way we equated it. You know, you jump, my kids jump in a pool and they don't swim that well. They're, well, they're assuming the risk they may drown in that pool, right? That's okay. But they don't assume the risk that when they get out of the pool, the three lifeguards are going to, are going to screw up and let them drown. You know, and that's what happened in this case. There were, there were four lifeguards in a pool with only two swimmers and one of them drowned. And that should not happen. It just should not happen. So, that's where we're at. And you mentioned you're just one little firm, but you're doing big things. Where could people go to learn more about your firm and what you guys do? I guess my website, <laughs> the Edelstein, Fagenberg, and Brown. You know, if we're going to pitch, if we're going to pitch us, I guess that's a, this is an opportunity to do it. We don't really advertise. 
don't really do that. You know, we're, we're a boutique firm. We, uh, we're extremely competent and good at what we do. Uh, Mago's case is a pretty good example of it. It's not the only case that we've had this kind of success on. Uh, if anybody wants more information about his case or what we're able to do, they just go to our website, call us up, find us. We're easy to find. I've been in business a long time. My father was an attorney. My grandfather was an attorney. You know, we know what to do. We know how to do it. Uh, we really care about these things. I think a lot of other lawyers, I was surprised when Mago's case settled, or the part of it settled, to hear from a lot of other lawyers out there, you know, that see it in the law journal and these things get out and around. And the response from a lot of other attorneys was, wow, I, I wouldn't have even taken that case, <laughs> which is, we never felt that way. But, uh, but a lot of lawyers looked at it and said, wow, that, that was a tough case. I mean, to take a boxer with all the assumption of the risk and do what you guys did on it. A lot of lawyers looked at it and said, why I wouldn't have even tried that. So that was a surprise to us. We never felt that way. Maybe that's, Maybe we're a little crazy, I guess, but we've been that way since the beginning uh, and we'll never change. Well, in this business, being a bit crazy may be a bit good. <laughs> Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Very much appreciated once again. Anytime, anytime. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, good luck with everything. And I, I'm glad people are reporting on it. I hope, I hope people understand what happened and try to do something about it. That's, that's the beauty of our civil justice system. You know, and the end or the beauty of our journalistic system, which is just as maybe even more important. In fact, the two of them together are the biggest checks uh, on government or corporations that could possibly exist. The judicial system and personal injury lawyers and civil lawyers. Most important thing. Perfect balance. Paul, thanks so much once again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's our interview with attorney Paul Adelstein. Hope you had a good time. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Dmitry Shaknovich, and if you want to learn more about me, please visit www.dshacklaw.com. And this is the Fight Lawyer Podcast. Till next time, folks.